We'll read verses 1 through 5. We'll be focusing mainly on verse 3. This is God's word. It's given to us for our good. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is the word of God, not merely the words of men. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Last week we began to consider together the role of women in the church, in the people of God. It's an important topic, and I think one that uh, the, the, the addressing of which is sorely needed in the church today. We saw that even though we as a church are committed to what's the clear teaching of Scripture, that the governing offices of elder and deacon are reserved for men, that God still has quite a robust calling upon women and that they occupy a vital place in the people of God. Very important work that needs to be done by women and through women. A church without spiritually strong and healthy women of God is not going to be a spiritually strong or a healthy church. And last week we saw that it all begins with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is like the process of making sure your ladder is locked and in place before you climb up to the top. Tonight we're taking the next step and thinking about what it means for godly women to model and to uh, to model godliness and to train other women in the church to be the same. In the language of Titus, it's uh, the vision of older women who are mature in the faith, training and modeling for the younger women who have yet to see this kind of godliness or yet to live into that kind of godliness. So in this way, Paul, uh, to Titus, calls women to be spiritual mothers to those who are younger than they are. They do not have to be biological mothers, but they become models and trainers in the household of God for the good of the younger women. It's important to notice that in tonight's passage, the kinds of things most often mentioned as that which needs to be taught are characteristics of virtue. Things like reverence or self-control. In other words, they're they're mostly concentrated on ethical things, practical parts of our lives. These are things that flow out of sound doctrine. You need sound doctrine in order to understand why you should live that way. But they're also a part of sound doctrine. If the Bible spends so much time commanding us to seek after holiness and commanding us to live in these ways, then it's not just merely the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christ that make up what we think of as those teachings, but it's also 
doctrine of the Christian life and understanding that this is part of what God commands us to know as well, how we are to live. So it's important to understand being trained doctrinally to understand simple things in the plan of salvation, like how we distinguish between what theologians call justification and sanctification. And justification is the position that we have before God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's completely uh, detached from works. We are forgiven of sin. We are declared to be righteous merely by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Sanctification is that ongoing process whereby through the Spirit of God we are conformed more and more into the image of God. And so our works take up a large part of that conversation on sanctification. It's important to understand how we are to go about that in the Christian life. Saved by grace. Saved through faith alone. In Christ alone. And yet, in Scripture, we are called to have spirit-filled, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort in becoming holier Christians. Spirit-filled, gospel-driven, and faith-fueled efforts and uh, understanding and trusting the grace of God to continue to sanctify us. So here's the central truth for tonight. All people in the household of God, both men and women, are to strive for godliness, which comes through a long life lived for the glory of God. Those who are older put this life on display. Those who are younger strive to have that kind of life so that they might do the same. Those who are older put godliness on display. Those who are younger strive to have that kind of godliness so that one day they might do the same. Paul also has some instructions for men, so let us unpack those together as they're found in verse 2. Men are called to have a godly life, a godly life. Of course, it's the same kind of uh, setup for men. Older men are to have this godliness of life that they are to show forth to younger men. That's not a fail-proof model, right? That's not perfect because sometimes there are those who are younger who can outstrip those who are older in their maturity. A younger man or a younger woman may show an exceptional amount of spiritual maturity and faith. In the book of 1 John, uh, John the Apostle uses a lot of words like little children, my little children, young men, young women, and he's using that more in a spiritual sense. You could call a, my little child someone who is a child in the faith, someone who might be a new believer. And yet here in Titus, Paul is using words that make it much more obvious he's talking about actual age here, those who are advanced in age. And that is because in a general sense, Of course, exceptions to just about every rule. But in a general sense, the older among us have seen and experienced and endured more in their walk with Jesus than those who are younger. And with that life that has been lived, in obedience to Christ, in submission to Christ, there is immense value to glean both from successes and failures that elders amongst us carry with them. This is why multi-generational churches are really, really very important and why you see a lot of the move towards, towards churches that are sort of siphoned off towards one or the other, one generation or another. That can be uh, really unfortunate. It's as basic as learning history. 
history is it's an important thing, not just church history, but just general history, history of our nation, history of the world. We look around us and oftentimes it, it seems like civilization seems to be eroding around us. And so many people seem eager to walk down paths that even going back 75 or 100 years ago were so destructive to various nations in our world. And it seems to be that these are people who don't really understand or have taken time to know history. If they would devote themselves to learning history, they would be able to learn from the wisdom that the ages passed down to us. In a similar way, a lifelong believer who has endured many years in submission to Christ, has seen many things before his or her eyes, is now in the twilight of life as like a living history textbook, possessing the wisdom that can only be gained through the experiences of life. More than just conveying information, they are also a living witness to the faithfulness of God. I could tell you, those who still love and adore their Savior late in life, they will tell you all day, about how faithful God has been for them. John MacArthur says this, Somebody old who has walked a long time in the path of righteousness is a treasure. A treasure of wisdom and a treasure of experience and a treasure of understanding. So older men and older women carry this invaluable quality and it's essential to the life and the health of the church. First, for older folks to understand that this is the value that they have in the people of God. In teaching, training, modeling. And then for younger people to understand that there is much value to be gleaned uh, from these people in God's household. So here, just very quickly, a couple of characteristics that godly men are to show. All of these things, not only the things that are said for men, but also the things for women, I think the common thread here is wisdom. If you are to be a godly person, you should be a wise person. And, and wisdom, we talk about it from time to time, it's, it's an ability to perceive things, to perceive consequences of actions, and to see beneath the surface. That's really what biblical wisdom is. An ability to perceive things beyond just the surface level. So Paul calls men to, be, to have temperance. Other translations are sober-minded. It's the idea, it carries the idea of being in control of what you do. One who holds himself in a certain manner. Doesn't let feelings carry him off into actions that would be sinful. Whether it be anger or lusts. Or whatever, it doesn't allow feelings, emotions of the moments to carry him off into sin. Someone who doesn't lean into his fleshly appetites just to satisfy them. A godly man is also worthy of respect. This uh, term for worthy of respect means someone who is appropriately serious about life. You've probably met people who seem like they just can't have a serious moment, does not have the ability to be serious about anything. A godly man must not be this way. It doesn't mean that there can never be any fun, doesn't mean that there can never be any smiles, but there needs to be an ability to, be, to have serious moments. And if you understand, if you have an increasing awareness of God's existence and eternity and the, 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 the pressing issues of the gospel and the church and people being lost in their sin. If you know about these things, you will understand more and more how much there are times that we need to be serious. It's interesting that uh, deacons, 
are called to the same kind of characteristic, uh, this being worthy of respect. Deacons' wives are also called to this, being worthy of respect, appropriately knowing how to be serious. Then older men here, and parents. Parents are called to this same thing, knowing when it is appropriate to be serious about life. If you're a parent who is never serious about anything, you're not going to have any respect from your children. A deacon needs to be able to be serious about things when there are pressing matters, serious matters in the church. Oftentimes, a a deacon's work introduces his wife as well, and deacon's wives have opportunities to serve, and they need to have this too. Self-controlled. He calls godly men to be self-controlled. A better way to translate this would be sensible. It's not being overly excessive in your approach to life. Not being excessive with everything, but understanding when you need uh, to exercise moderation or restraint. And then finally, being sound in faith and in love and endurance. This word for sound is the same word we find in verse 1. Healthy means having a healthy faith, a strong and a vibrant faith, a strong and a vibrant love, a love that functions well, and then perseverance that is not shaken or tossed to and fro by the winds of uncertainty in this life. You see how all of these things kind of, they, 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 they reek of wisdom. That seems to be the common thread. And so as Paul moves to women, which is the, the focus of, of what we're doing tonight, and how they model godliness and then train younger women, that is a common thread as well. Paul begins with the word likewise. So let's consider all these things for women together. He begins with the word likewise. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that he's sort of introducing all of those uh, characteristics for godly men and saying women likewise need to have all of that and then they need to have all of these? No, I think what he means by likewise is that there is that common thread of sober-mindedness, of wise living uh, that you can see that are similar in these two sets of characteristics and yet they are distinct in some ways that they are more tailored to men or to women depending on who Paul is talking to. So the first godly characteristic to which Paul calls women that they might model godliness and that they might train others to have the same, particularly older women to the younger women is reverence. Reverence. This is a very interesting word. Reverence. It's connected to the, the words for priest and temple. William Barclay, a, a Puritan pastor, used this long-winded phrase as his own translation. Said, charge the older women to be in demeanor such as befits those who are engaged in sacred things. In other words, if you are a woman of God, called of God, loved by God, washed by Christ, understand that you are called to live a life before God. We said last week that sound doctrine is, or learning doctrine, is about learning to live well in the presence of God. We think of the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. And it's used as a reminder of what the Christian life is, a life that is lived before the face of God. And we ask uh, our girls in the, the children's catechism that they're learning. We ask them, can you see God? And, and the answer, only the older one answers at this point, but uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get the other one answering soon. Can you see God? And the answer is, no, 
I don't see God, but he always sees me. And the idea there is that we need to understand, all people, young and old, need to understand that the Christian life is about your life is seen by God. God knows what you are doing. God sees everything that you do. We live before the face of God. We are called to live a life of sacred worship, of our bodies sacrificed and given unto the Lord. So Paul says to women that godliness in women is seen that those who approach life with the awareness of the sacred nature of life. Godly women know that their life is lived before the face of God, both inside the home and outside of their home. To so many work might seem mundane, and you are are forced to ask, how can this possibly be sacred? My life seems so mundane. It seems like all of the menial tasks that I have to do, whether it's inside the home or outside of the home, it seems like there's no lasting value in them. Martin Luther loved to talk about the milkmaid, and how uh, her work was sacred. So live as one who knows that you are living before the face of God, and God calls you to live for him in whatever he calls you to do. To be someone like Anna in the Gospel of Luke, who was widowed at a young age, but then took great joy for the rest of her life, actually working in the temple. She could have blamed God for being put in kind of a tough situation, being widowed at a young age. She could have become bitter, but instead she was filled with great joy to serve her God all of her days. And then isn't it interesting that when the Messiah, when Jesus comes to the temple, she is one of only two people who recognizes the face of her Savior and her Messiah. So she rejoices when she sees the infant face of Jesus. And I believe one of the things going on there is that the righteousness of Simeon and Anna, the way that they understood what God had called them to do with their lives and how they sacrificed their own lives to God allows them to see and to recognize Jesus, even though they would have had nothing uh, within them to recognize it was by the grace of God. When one Puritan pastor remembered the life of his mother, he said this, My mother's habit... He's looking back on his childhood. He said this. My mother's habit was every day immediately after breakfast to withdraw for an hour to her own room and to spend that hour reading the Bible in meditation and prayer. From that hour as from a fountain she drew strength and sweetness which enabled her to fulfill all her duties and to remain unruffled by the worries and pettiness which are often the trial of narrow neighborhoods. Sounds like the Puritan world got caught up in the same things that our world can too. So women are called to be reverent. Understand that you live your life before the face of God. And how does that affect everything that you do? Women are also called to not be slanderers. Paul does not mince words here at all. The word he uses for slanderers is just the word for devil. The devil, Diabolos. In other words, Paul is saying, don't be like Satan, who is a false accuser and who will say anything to stir up dissension and cause discord, who will lie whenever he opens his mouth, who is the accuser of the brethren. He wants to sow feelings of dislike, of hurt or hatred, revenge within the people of God. He's always working to cause us to rise up against one another. And all of that can be started how? With the tongue. 
with the tongue and understanding how powerful that is. It's a dangerous weapon, one that is small but can set the whole world on fire. I wanted to read a part of James chapter 3 because I think it captures this well. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, James says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So I think reverence is really an important thing. It's really why when Paul calls women to have reverence, that is really the most important virtue that he calls them to because if you understand that your life is lived before the face of God, you will understand how important it is the things that you say. That's one of the ways that we see good doctrine leads to righteous living. Remind yourself of God. Know who he is. Know that your life is lived before him and that will affect the way that you live. And then lean on his grace to change you. For as James says, no human being can tame the tongue. You need the Holy Spirit's help in Christ, just like the mother of that Puritan pastor who would start every day with an hour in meditation and scripture and prayer. Author John Bloom says this, I think it's important to think about when we think about slandering others and dragging their names through the mud. He says this, We are stewards of the treasure of each other's good name. Let us seek to silence the slanderer within and graciously give and receive others' help when one of us slips, perhaps unaware, into slander. When you slander the name of one of God's children, do you realize that, that you are doing that to someone that is so important to God that he chose them in Christ before the foundations of the earth were laid. That he has set upon them an everlasting love and has made sure to save them, to pluck that person out of his or her sin and placed his everlasting love on him or her. So remember that when you are tempted to slander a brother or a sister in Christ. Paul calls women to not be slanderers, for what a world can be set ablaze by our tongues. He also calls women to be free of something else, and that is addiction. An addiction here specifically to wine. This would have been something present, obviously, in Paul's day and still in ours. It, it needs to be addressed, particularly in passages like this, because it's the exact opposite of being sober-minded. The, the, the prototypical Christian, if you read all of the New Testament, it is someone who is in control of her own actions. Seeing the consequences and the ability to perceive why something is not right and why it should be avoided. 
Why do so many people struggle with drunkenness? What is so tempting about being about getting drunk. Well, it makes things easier. It makes life more comfortable. It allows you to forget about pain and hardships. And it's easy to become addicted to the feeling of having your problems erased, albeit for a short time with a substance. Taking refuge in a substance that takes the feelings away. It's very addicting for many people. God wants his people to have clear eyes and to look straight into the face of this sin-cursed life with a fierce faith that clings to him in all things. Clear eyes, maybe not dry eyes. Our vision may be blurred from tears that come from sorrow or joy in God amidst pain. But we are not to replace God as our refuge with any fleeting feeling of pleasure that the world can give. The word for being addicted to is really the word for enslavement. It's a form of the the Greek word doulos, Greek word slave. That is what addictions do. They hold you as a slave because they do not satisfy in any lasting sense and they force you to stay close by them until you get your next fix. Alcohol and drugs are obviously common in obvious places where the vice of addiction is clearly seen, but if you compile a list of addictions today and what, the, what are the kinds of things that people struggle with and even the kinds of things the people of God struggle with, food, Diet and exercise, shopping, television, romance novels, sex are all areas where women, Christian women, admit of intense addiction. We see again how understanding reverence here as it occurs in Titus is an important antidote against enslavement to these many things. We also see that those who are older are especially equipped to show the futility of chasing after addictions or enslavements because addictions are never things that age well in this life. It always becomes obvious how destructive they are. If you've lived a long time, you've probably sadly seen it happen in many people's lives and you can point people to something better. If you are older in Christ, you can remind people that these kinds of things never age well. And the destructiveness will clearly be seen. So you can say, Jesus is always better than this. Jesus is always better than that. Jesus is always better than whatever the world affords you. This causes us to think long and hard about our own lives. Are there idols that need to be rooted out? Are there idols that can easily become addictions if we're not careful with them? Whether drinking or anything else that we use for coping in times of great need or in great pain. Are we enslaved to something that holds us? Or are we able to say no to everything in order that we might serve the God who sets us free by by his grace? It's these three things to which Paul calls women, specifically the older women, to learn and to be in order that they might teach what is good. Paul says, if you do these, if you are these, you will teach what is good and so model godliness within the household of God for those who need it. And so you ask, well, how do we, if we're working on having all of those things in our lives, how do we get that? How do we model and how do we train? Do you need to set up some kind of program? Do you need to have a class or a school or something? 
The problem with a program-centered approach to discipleship in the household of God is that it's a bit constricting. There's nothing wrong with classes or Bible studies. These are all things that we can and probably should be doing. But a program-centered mentality is never going to be able to accommodate all of the possible situations that will come up in people's lives. It's never going to be able to, to be flexible enough to, to, to say, well, this person's dealing with this and that person's dealing with something else. And how are we going to take care of all of these problems if we've got one program that's centered upon one thing? And a lot of those programs take a lot of time and effort that could be spent in responding to the situations that come up in people's lives. So the best approach, if you're seeking to be a woman of God, modeling godliness and training others for godliness is to trust that God is going to bring into your life and to your attention just those situations and just those relationships into which you can pour your effort for modeling godliness and for training others in it. Are there younger women that you know hurting for counsel or encouragement? Make yourself available. If something happens to someone else in their life, reach out to them in love. God will build his church If God wants his people to be sanctified, don't you think that God is powerful and sovereign enough to bring into our lives those people whom he wants us to have a part in training and sanctifying them? God will build his church and he will bring about just the right situations that he wants us to invest in. That's for all of us, not just the older women, but all of us as we seek to be faithful to God. Make yourself available to him and God will entrust many things to you. Lastly, perhaps you feel like you're not a worthy person to do any of this. Say, well, I've lived a long time in submission to God. I've lived a long time knowing Christ as my savior, but I feel like I've sinned too much. I've failed too often to be of any use in this area. But that is to forget The power that allows us to do this. It's not about us. And it's not because of us. Modeling godliness in God's house is not about look at me. Modeling godliness in the household of God is about look at him. Look at Jesus. Or rather, look at me and how I look at him. Look at me in all of the ways that I've learned that I cannot lean upon myself to get this done. Look at me in all of the ways that I've learned I need to lean upon Christ. Trusting in myself gets me nowhere. And I've learned that over and over and over again. So watch me in how I look at him and how I follow after him. Kathy Laurie has this quote. She says, here is the challenge to you spiritual mothers. Will you allow God to use you to help others learn from your knowledge and experience, your mistakes and your victories? This is an example here in Titus 2 of the full life to which God calls women in the household of God. Yes, not called to be elders or deacons, but a vital, vital part of the health of his church and his household, modeling godliness and training others for it. This is the modeling career you should strive for, modeling godliness and training those younger than you. If the church is full of women who embrace this calling, even in small and subtle ways, the church will be much healthier for it. When the church is full of people that point others to Jesus Christ, 
even amidst our failures. Yes, there are successes, but even amidst our failures, when we point others to Jesus Christ and point others to the grace that is found in him, the church will be a healthy place indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for yet another day in your house to praise you, to hear from you. Father, thank you for your word. Father, may we treasure this in our hearts. May you use us to build your church, to build your people. We thank you for the women in your household, the women in your church. Father, you have saved them. Father, you love them with an everlasting love and they have such a vital role to play in the life of the church. Strengthen them and empower them unto that end. Father, sanctify them in your truth that as they model godliness and train others for it, Father, that we would see, that we would see the work that you are doing and that we would rejoice in what you are doing, training, training them to be women of God with a fierce faith that look with clear eyes into this world, who are sober-minded and who are reverent, who are not slanderers, who are not addicted to the pleasures of this world, who lean on Christ. And trust in him always. So we thank you for them, Father. May we all learn from them as we see godliness modeled through their lives. In Christ's name, amen.